Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to CSG Politics. Before I get started on today's CSG Politics, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazi in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, now's a good time to go down uh, because the weather is the best uh, it's been all year. It is really, really spectacular. If you want to go safe, socially distant, um, wine consumption i guess is the best way to put it <laughs> go to go to the dairy block go to bunch of family wines get yourself a bottle of the 2017 cabernet or a glass and enjoy a nice nice time out if you're like me and you can't really risk it right now till you get vaccinated go to bfwdenver.com get yourself a bottle of the 2017 cab get some pinot get some um uh, syrahs get some whites get some blends i mean they basically have everything you need these grapes are from sonoma county so obviously the pinot is their specialty but they really got everything else uh, they have partnerships with western slope wineries one called restoration and one called storm cellars uh storm cellars is uh, specializes in rieslings which aren't really my thing but i'm told that actually they're very very good i did have them and if you're going to have a riesling get that um you can also go book your virtual wine tasting at bfwdenver.com. Those are extremely popular. You're going to have to probably book a month out, but uh, they're well worth it, particularly as we're winding down this pandemic and more people are getting vaccinated. Uh, this is probably still a really good thing for you to kind of be part of a community of wine tasting. Uh, they offer delivery curbside pickup and shipment uh, if you go to bfwdenver.com and you want a uh, anything they have to offer on the website. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field right in the middle of the dairy block. Uh, when you go in or you talk to them, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. And uh, once again, make sure you get that virtual wine tasting because it is extremely popular. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on the latest CSG Politics. I am, of course, your co-host, Jeff Morton. Joining me, as always, from not New Mexico, uh, my friend, your friend, everybody's friend, the legend himself, Pat Garrett. Hello, Pat. Good day, sir. Hello to you. It is magnificent. It is. It's a magnificent day. The weather has just been spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. We're getting that like micro dose of spring to get us all excited, but we know snow is still going to come back. This is true. And then and I keep telling people who always complain about drought uh, here in Colorado in the winter, I always tell them like, look, it gets to about March and we get all of our snow from March to April. I mean, all of it will mm -hmm. come. So just to just wait around a bit and we'll suddenly start getting all the moisture. And sure enough, what was it last week? We got like a foot of snow out here. So yeah. Uh, and it's always those dense, wet snows that, kill trees but uh fill uh fill the rivers and streams and right hopefully get us through and also as you know the uh the wildfire threat is always uh, looming so 
as it's much moisture all, as possible. Omni, omnipresent. That's for I'm sure. pro water. I'm pro pro moisture for Pat Pat Garrett. Anti fire. Yes. <laughs> pro water. Um, well, it's been about three weeks Take, since we did our podcast, right? Uh, last one. Is, yeah. Yes, it is. Or has. Um, we uh, a lot's happened, but really the main thing that has happened outside of the uh, impeachment of Donald John Trump, which happened. Uh, three weeks ago is uh my dad got vaccinated no that's that's not what we're going to talk about um but the, but the uh uh the stimulus has made its uh way through the reconciliation process process the 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus package that includes many many different things that uh, we could probably go through right now um made its way through the senate uh via some interesting machinations uh, I guess what I, my first question to start us off here, Pat, is how much have, were you following the, uh, the kind of the day-to-day of what was happening with the stimulus? Well, you know, as uh, the mayor of Make Politics Boring Again Town, right. um, I've been l- dreaming of a massive spending bill of extreme boredom to be pushed through, uh, through a congressional process. Uh, you mentioned the impeachment. I feel like it's, you know, the impeachment is like the, the, the book end of the craziness of the past four years. Um, now I'm not naive enough to think that the craziness is gone. And we started even seeing parts of it rear its head during this, uh, sort of political process, but it was done. So, um, in a manner that wasn't leading, you know, the entertainment section of the news that wasn't blowing up, uh, social media with sort of false indignation, although there's still plenty of that, I guess. Um, And so I paid a fair amount of attention to it because I think that um, what I learned from Barack Obama's administration, getting elected in 2008 and 2009, they decided to go all in on healthcare. I think it didn't pass till 2010, but, um, but they decided that, that they were going to take that mandate from that election and the House and Senate majorities that they had, and they were going to focus on health care, and that that was going to set the stage for the rest of the administration. And, you know, they got it through by hook or by crook, as they say, um, but then they almost were hamstrung in everything else they ever tried to do um, for their next six years, um, whether that be getting uh, judges uh nominated and confirmed or any other major pieces of legislation was a real challenge. So uh, comparing that to now, um, I think that it's has the potential to be not only a, an impactful um, thing for the economy, for individuals that have been going through, you know, this sort of once in a hundred years pandemic and suffering and all of that. Um, but it's going to set up a situation where, the benefits that come from that are going to start paying off at the perfect time. And to, you know, by the time 2022 comes around, I would expect this sort of like massive investment in the uh, domestic economy to really start paying off in a lot of ways, which is right when the midterms are coming up and then, you know, moving forward into the latter half of the first term. uh, Again, I think you're going to start to see a lot of um, things that are very positive emerge that are working like simultaneously with vaccination distribution, which is a part of the stimulus as well, um, getting us through the pandemic. And I think that that is going to be an old fashioned sort of a political win uh, for uh, the Biden-Harris administration um, as, a, as a policy as well as a political um, 
accomplishment. And so uh, I'm excited to uh, to see, you know, something get done. Now the process um, exposes all the things that drive me insane, which is just like archaic, ridiculous sort of formalities that the Congress gets engaged in, specifically the Senate. Um, the whole reading of the bill thing was like complete ridiculous sideshow, totally unnecessary. Um, but, you know, I always talk about the asymmetry of the two political parties, you know, the Democrats were never doing that when unpopular legislation was coming through, like the tax cut bill. Um, you know, they knew they were going to lose that vote and they did, you know, um, but to just engage in like, you know, these dumb procedural things in order to delay the inevitable is ridiculous. Um, and of course, the filibuster is one of those things too, which, you know, this passing through reconciliation meant that it did not have to get um, a 60 vote threshold to be brought up for a vote. Um, so this could, this will likely be the only win um, up until there are chances to maybe nominate judges to the, to the federal courts or potentially the Supreme court at some time, which again, will only take a 50 vote majority. Um, so you know, uh, a great credit to an administration that has come in and in less than, you know, what are they at 45 days now or so, um, have really gotten some things done. And a lot of them are under the radar because we're not, you know, they're not being done under the umbrella of controversial tweets or um, combative uh, sort of press conferences, which I know the there's a lot of people complaining that there hasn't even been a press conference yet, but um, you know, I think those things are all deliberative. Um, and uh, I'm, I believe that we are on that path to this being a boring political process that actually gets things done, but doesn't get mired in the sideshows. Well, it's interesting to, 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 to think about the, uh, the, the sideshow aspect of it and the, uh, um, the the mansionization of uh, the <laughs> of what happened this weekend, but but I'll I'll be I'll be honest with you I'll take Joe Manchin drama over Donald Trump drama any day, um, and it was and inevitably he only affected um, during this kind of negotiation which was kind of fraught Friday night into Saturday. Um, they do this thing called Voterama which is, uh, I mean, during the reconciliation <laughs> reconciliation process, they just throw every amendment on the thing that they could possibly do. Republicans doing ridiculous ones, Democrats trying to reach compromises. And uh, one of those compromises was a uh, for the unemployment insurance, uh, extending it out until um, past the, the uh, break that they take in August uh, to um, uh, uh, having it like I think the, the initial compromise was four hundred dollars a month, uh, or four hundred dollars added to uh, on top of that, plus your first ten thousand two hundred tax, basically tax free, uh, on your unemployment insurance, which is huge. I think that's the big, one of the bigger parts of this uh, this uh, this bill, and it, that was in there. And apparently, Manchin was like, "You sandbagged me." Uh, you didn't go this through me. And then there's some dispute about what actually happened there. So that ended up holding up the Senate for like four hours of, of them arm twisting Joe Manchin into getting this. 
But at the same time, and just in, in a manner of uh, just my perspective, I would take the machinations and sausage making of the of the Senate in this way, as infuriating as it is, over the constant drama and the the just, uh, for lack of a better expression, batshit craziness of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, Joe Manchin is like uh, less uh, self-righteous Susan Collins. Like, you know, to be a swing voter in the Senate gives you a unique amount of power. Right. And the unique situation that Manchin finds himself in, which is that he comes from West Virginia, which is almost unbelievable that you have a Democratic senator. Right. Um, but... <laughs> Democrat name only in a lot of ways, yeah. uh, but um, it, it, you know we, he is needed in order to be able to set the agenda of the Senate and have that majority um, with the vice president sort of uh, breaking a tie. Uh, but that's going to be the reality: is that there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be held up because of uh, Joe Manchin and apparently Kristen Cinema from uh, Arizona wants to be involved in that as well, and uh, it's going to infuriate a lot of people on the left. Um, but you know, I mean, the alternative reality is that, you know, the Democrats achieved pretty much their maximum ceiling in right. the 2020 election and were able to get control of the Senate, which was a miracle. I think when we were talking in December, I said there was no way that they right. were going to win those two Senate seats in Georgia. But the fact that they did allowed a world where at least the um, sort of ceiling on progressive agenda is set by Joe Manchin and a couple of other moderates in the Senate rather than by Mitch McConnell um, and uh, his merry network of senators. Well, I, I, I think one of my biggest uh, pushbacks to people who say Joe Manchin is bad for the Democratic Party, bad for the Senate is like, right. I mean, it's going to be frustrating to deal with him. If you want to make him less powerful, win elections, and that's the only that's the only way you can do it. Yeah. If you win, or have senators retire or die in right. uh, red, in uh, uh, that are Republican, and they have Democratic governors. Well, <laughs> that's, that is, that's, that's, that's the only other choice we can hope for. But yeah. uh, it's a necessary evil. There's always going to be someone that's the most moderate of your caucus, and right. sometimes they're going to find themselves with a tremendous amount of power. And unfortunately, I don't think that there's like a a, a real centrist caucus that can come out of um, Republicans and Democrats and the Senate being able to kind of set an agenda that could pass a filibuster. Um, I just don't think that you're going to find another 10 Republicans after the, you know, the, the ones that are always there like Murkowski and Collins and Romney um, in order to like really move things forward because let's not forget the the governing philosophy of republicans and especially in the senate is for government to be as sort of uh kneecapped as possible in everything that it does both for political reasons you know they don't want to give the the ruling party and the president party in the white house victories but also from like a philosophical standpoint i mean they literally believe that government should not be involved in almost everything um which you know you saw 
a nice demonstration of with the recent uh, power grid struggles in the great state of Texas. Right, right. You know, I was thinking about this too. I, the, the, I don't think the moderate wing of the Republican Party is moderate enough to have moderate enough to have a um, gang of eight caucus. Um, there's not going to be. I think there's mo- mo- Democrats who are moderate enough. I do not believe there are Republicans. Even Mitt Romney. Look, that uh, I, I, he's very good at appearing like he is moderate, but he is is a, your bog standard Republican, basically, with you know some things that he's willing to buck his party on. But it's it's like it's like depending on Susan Collins for anything, you'll you'll basically you'll basically be perpetually frustrated, you know. For sure. Well, Mitt, Mitt Romney, and you know, we could do a whole show on my Mitt Romney experiences, but I've long been wildly skeptical of uh, his um, virtue as a leader. Right. And uh, there's been moments in recent times, uh, like the impeachment votes and such, where you're like, hey, maybe this guy's got it, got it figured out, and, and this sort of thing. But he always finds his way back to a sort of duplicitous, famously uh, Tim Russert. Uh, pulling out the flip-flops on Meet the Press, telling him that, you know, you're accused of uh, always flip-flopping. And um, so, you know, we know who Mitt Romney is. He's not changed. But if the Senate was full of Mitt Romneys on the other side, I would find it to be far more uh, palatable than the Ron Johnsons and the Mitch McConnells and then, of course, the Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's of the world. When did he win his election in Utah? Was that 18? I think it was in 2018, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I almost promise you, and I'm glad this is being recorded, Morty, so we can look back to it, Mitt Romney is going to run for president again. Like, yes, he will. I think that Mitt Romney will run in 2024, and that he probably has a very good chance of pulling together some of the estranged Republicans, like the Lincoln Projectors or, you know, the um, those that like left due to Trump because it was, it's the perfect opening for them to like re-embrace conservative values and re-embrace conservative social stances and things like that. And, you know, he's a billionaire and can run for president pretty much at will. Uh, so that would be fascinating. Well, I, but you know, we're not it, talking about 2024. Yeah. <laughs> not yet, but you know what? I hope that would be a more, um, uh, uh, sane election cycle than the one we've experienced the last couple two times. Uh, but I, I, I'll tell you this: Joe Biden is is to me doing everything that he can in a very correct and well reasoned manner to eliminate his own personal drama and not impress himself upon the public in every sort of way. And what that has done, and there was an article, uh, Bloomberg had an article out, uh, Reuters had an article mm-hmm. out, um, my good friend uh, Tim Miller had an article out about it today, about how Biden is doing this all without making himself the center of attention, which is really, I mean, this shouldn't be remarkable. That's generally what presidents have done going back for generations. Well, Tim Miller's article makes the point, too, that a lot of people point out that, uh, you know, this is all luck. But the reality, this is all carefully calculated. The same Sleepy Joe, you know, type of uh, moniker that uh, Trump bestowed upon Joe Biden was done on purpose. 
by uh, the campaign and by the strategy of the uh, of the election or for the election. Right. And so uh, the same thing is happening now. Like there's a reason they send out the press secretary every single day to do a press conference, and they usually have uh, some. Uh, sort of additional or separate press conference with the COVID team or, uh, you know, people from the State Department or whatever the sort of general topic of discussion is in that cycle. It allows them to control the news cycle and keep it focused on policy and keep the president out of weighing in on all of this sideshow business um you know if joe biden was getting the you know the the helicopter questions shouted at him you know all the time you know then he'd have to make a comment about this wacky dr seuss controversy or you know things of that nature um but again (laughs) this plan is working and making the politics boring because we're talking about who's getting fourteen hundred dollars stimulus checks not what the real meaning behind a publisher making business decisions is is about and what the president thinks of it um you know the 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 twitter feed of the president is very similar to the obama twitter feed which was when you know twitter was just in its infancy where it's basically just like sentences from the press shop about what's in the news regarding their work in the policy front it's not commenting on every freaking thing on you know who should be winning television reality shows or how outrageous it is that such and such didn't win an oscar you know it's like that stuff is beneath uh, a presidency and i think that what you're really looking at is during the trump years we did a lot of talking about norms and how they were shattered and and a lot of us uh that are interested in some reforms uh would like to see norms become laws but um you're seeing from my perspective an administration that is adhering to those norms and that is like celebrating them and understands their value and that has taken less of an adversarial approach to the way that they do business. You know, you hear Republicans in the Senate talking about how this is a blue state bailout, this uh, stimulus package, which is like so dishonest because, you know, the red states needed more than the blue states, which is why they're red. Um, And the the White House doesn't engage in that. You know, they're like, hey, this is for everybody. I'm the president of everybody. That's important rhetoric to continue to beat down because it does give permission for people that start to see the benefits of some of the policies that are able to get passed and how it impacts their lives in a positive way. It gives them permission to like be okay with the fact that it was done by maybe a party that they're not a member of or by a president that they maybe didn't vote for. And that is a path back to a more sort of germane political uh, dichotomy where there is a middle that people find themselves in. And, you know, I grew up with a lot of people saying like, I'm, you know, fiscally conservative, but socially I'm moderate or liberal or things like that. There was like hair splitting was kind of appropriate and almost like a badge of honor for a lot of people where in the past, you know, for eight, 12 years, it's really got down to like red states and blue states, you know? I mean, I don't even remember that expression before. Uh, 2000. I'll, I, my, one, one, of the, one of the things that I, I appreciate the most about Joe Biden is not the necessarily the fact that there's a calming factor in it or any, any like that, anything like that, more than the fact that, that he is focused on the actual policy. And I, I guess that we needed a, 
for lack of a better word, a wonky, wonkish president uh, who is just in there in the weeds doing all this stuff. Now, one of the, the and I, if, I, if I had a criticism of Barack Obama is that he was too professorial about everything. Um, he kind of had a tendency to talk down to you if he was not, um, if he was not in a position to he to where he uh, people were agreeing with him a lot. He would he would kind of go into professorial mode and then kind of just go there. And I think that probably is is something that kind of counted against him, not in a big way, but on the margins. Um, Biden has this every guy thing. And he's able to be wonkish without uh, without having to be professorial about it. Uh, the most wonkish presidency I've seen, well, said, well, Bill Clinton was extremely wonkish uh, because of he had to be involved in everything. Um, but that was a different time. That was back when we only saw press conferences and. Uh, when, when we only saw like interviews and stuff like that, that's, that's how we consumed our presidential information. Um, when Obama got in and one of the things that I like that Biden has carried on is what you pointed out is like the, uh, the Twitter uh, activity is all statements written by someone else, which is what it should be. That's why you have press secretaries that is why you have a press office it is for them to do that for you uh it is workshopped it is everything every word is thought out which some people don't like you know, some people like the you know the off the cuff uh you know angry rants of of, of uh um of uh, donald trump but most people are like they want this whether they th think about it or not they want the pablum they want the the stuff that they can easily easily digest and I think that part there, to me, at least frees time to, like in, my, like in the mental gymnastics that I perform, uh, leads me to believe that Joe Biden is actually working on things that matter to the actual governing of the United States. Well, the people that are into the sort of uh, chaos um, and sort of celebrity culture of um, presidential politics are those that have come into the process and ruined it you know that right. we should talk about this before like you know there's an element of people that they vote their interests okay so if you're wealthy and you want to pay less taxes and you want less government control and you're a business owner and there's regulations and they're causing you more work and you know more money and all that and then then, then you're political policy that aligns, you know, with the conservative politician, or if you're a public school teacher and you see that, uh, you know, schools are underfunded in your community and that you're observing a lot of difficulties amongst your students and things like that, then, you know, your philosophy may be more, um, hey, the government should help these people out and should help the school out and things like that. And maybe you identify more with a, with a more liberal politician and that's all normal and healthy. That's what puts people in positions to get elected as members of their community to go and represent them when you start getting into a situation where it's like a, you know a, a freaking reality show situation you bring people into the fold and those are usually the loudest people um, that then start driving the conversation and move it away from policy and ideas and what's good for the country you know those are all like that's a very generous way of describing the, the, the perfection but you know that is sort of 
the goal of a functioning political system. And instead it becomes this whole personality thing. And I mean, of course you saw this manifest itself with the insane, um, you know, the big lie of the election being stolen and things like that, where it was like reasonable people would have never fallen for that in the past, but because there were so many unreasonable people that were given platforms and megaphones to rail that out there, then it allowed a lot of reasonable people who were looking for reasons why their preferred candidate didn't win or, or ways in which to accept that a person that they hate did win, yeah. um, you know, then they have an easier path towards that way of thinking and it's wildly damaging. And I don't know if it can be undone um, at any time uh, because it does kind of take both sides to be involved there. But if it were to be able to, to be done, um, then this is how it would start is by having somebody who is, uh, you know, a type of guy who you could strike up a conversation with and listen to you. I mean, I'm fascinated to think of what the first meeting was when he had the Senate uh, Republicans as, a, as his first sort of Oval Office meeting with the congressional um, branch. And, you know, they go in there and, and they had to have sort of softened some of their tone versus the way that they talked to the cameras. And I know later Susan Collins was indignant that it turned out not to be bipartisan at all because the Republicans voted for it. But, you know, that seems to be a, an interesting analysis of that. Um, and well, so that's a, that's a show game, anyhow, right? That's a show game. It's like, yeah, they, oh, for sure. they, they all knew that no, no Republican would vote for it. And I, that, but look, it has bipartisan support in the public. So, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, and also, like, why do you want to complain that something isn't bipartisan when 70% of the public is in support of something? So it's like you're, like, vi valiantly representing the 30%, which, right. you know, I can imagine where that 30, what that 30% is made up of. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of them are arrested right now. Arrested and freaking released, though. I mean, I've never yeah. seen so many people just like, oh, why don't you go out on bail? Try not to try to overthrow the government again. Catch, catch and release, right? Um, <laughs> they, I, I just, uh, I, you know, moving moving forward. There's, I mean, obviously this will pass the House. Uh, there may be some liberal uh, parts of the caucus who raise a stink over the, the the lack of minimum wage on there, but that was never going. Let me t let me tell people who are listening to this who happen to be on the left wing part of the uh, the equation here. Once the Senate parliamentarian ruled against it. It was no way it was going to be included, period. Regardless of how it was included in the House bill, there's just never, it just was never going to happen. I happen to support the $15 minimum wage. I happen to think it's very good policy, but I also happen to know that as soon as that parliamentarian made that ruling, it was never going to happen. And in order to get a, through a 50-50 Senate, you can't, you, you can't have something like that because that's going to divide the caucus. And obviously it almost did. Um, with Cinema and Manchin and eight, uh, I believe, six other Democrats voting against it after Bernie introduced it, obviously it was never going to happen. Um, and that moves us to something that once this stimulus gets out there and it will get passed. Well, next, yeah, in both homes, both Delaware senators. Well, the next, the next, uh, um, yeah, and I'll. Oh, uh, sorry to cut you off, but I was just going to say, Morty. All right, go. Um, 
on that $15 minimum wage or on, you know, on, on inclusion and, and why, as you pointed out, some on the left are really dissatisfied that it wasn't included. Um, it was the whole ball game when the parliamentarian ruled it out. But I think that the, it's an area where it's possible to find a group of senators that can pass a minimum wage increase. It might not be to $15, but surely there's like room to do something. And that does give all sides an opportunity to be like, hey, look, we did something bipartisan and it hasn't happened in a half a generation now um, type of thing. Uh, because the, the fundamentals are obvious. I mean, the $7.25 minimum wage has been around for like 20 years. It's never been updated. It's completely ridiculous. And many states already have a $15 or, you know, a higher minimum wage that the state requires. Right. So it's almost like semi-painless uh, sort of obvious choice to get together and ramp it up over the course of the next five years so that it gets to $15 or, seven, you know, $17 in 10 years or whatever it happens to be. Well, I, I think we are at the point where I think everyone acknowledges that uh, at, at, at some intellectual level um the, the minimum wage needs to be to be raised mansion was like uh we can't do that sort of thing in uh west virginia and we can't go up to 15 but he was okay with it going to 11 or something like that he was on the the, the chat mm -hmm. show this morning talking about that and my my thing is like okay i get it and maybe maybe we could do you know make adjustments and everyone acknowledges that the, the minimum wage can go up. But if you start making allotments for states, states tend to freeze. States tend to uh, not want to move when they should. And I don't know how you balance the federal minimum wage going up with what the state was, is going needing slash wanting to do anyway. Yeah. I mean, I don't buy the arguments of like, Oh, $15 is way too much in certain places. You know, it's like, there's a $15 minimum wage in Washington, DC and uh, you know, McDonald's hamburger is still $2. So what is the problem with, you know, somebody, I mean, if somebody in West Virginia is making $7 and 25 cents an hour, um, then that tells you a lot about what you need to know about the health of the economy in West Virginia. And right. maybe that's where the attention should be spent instead of grandstanding, you know, the Senate to hold up a, um, you know, a universally popular stimulus deal. Um, like you said, it ended up not mattering because it was excluded by the parliamentarian. But I mean, Joe Manchin has to appeal to his base, which is, not Republicans as much as Democrats and independents. Um, and it's a tricky thing, but uh, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of, I can't believe this guy voted for this one way or another, you know? And I think if you can dig into some of those Votorama things, it was like, what is going on? What's, why are they, first of all, even proposed? But secondly, like, why are some of these people supporting them? You know? Well, I, I, Look at it. Look at it this way: um, the uh, the Votorama was always going to be ridiculous. I think I, as I remember, on the ACA uh, Votorama, they were throwing things in there that were absolutely absurd. Like uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember some interesting, but it, it, uh, Al Franken's podcast this morning, he had a. Uh, he had an example of some of the ridiculous things the Republicans were throwing in there. Um, 
and it, it happens in every one. The, the the minimum wage was just once it was ruled out, it was ruled out because you have too you have a lot of people who are not uh, who are who, who like the institution of the Senate, and it was never going to be overruled. Uh, be based on that because the Senate has this proprietal kind of parochial um, parental view of the way they they are the adults and the Congress is the children and that's that's how they view themselves and that was it, it just it was doomed um, but I think in just in my own view the minimum wage will get passed again I think I think I think mm -hmm. it will come to fruition but uh, because of the way the Senate is right now you're going to have to compromise, and I just don't know if 15 is going to be the number. Yeah, I'm sure it's not, and that obviously is because that's the starting point. A compromise would have to be something to come down from that. But there's also not a lot of incentive for, um, you know, for red Republican senators to do anything alongside of Democrats, like they'll pay a price for it politically because they're coming from very polarized states that are heavily leaning in their, in their, you know, towards their party. That's why Manchin is so fascinating because he comes from a Trump state, but he's a Democrat. And so he has to really, you know, temper things down um, as much as possible. Um, but I agree. I think that it is something that they will, re will revisit. And I think that they need to do that. Um, you know, it's just, Another example of this sort of uh, neglect of taking care of the, the sort of basic uh, roles of government, which is, you know, maybe take a look at the minimum wage every five years and make sure that it's kind of keeping up with uh, the way things kind of need to be for people in this country and the lower level of the socioeconomic scale to, right. you know, have access to upward mobility and not just like let it just float out there forever and become a campaign issue and then becomes controversial. And then due to the archaic formalities of the Senate, as you um, mentioned, um, then uh, nothing, you know, a lot of things are going to, are going to die um, sort of at the feet of the parliamentarian or, or the adherence to these old timey, machinations of Senate policymaking. Well, and, and keeping with, a, and, and kind of a small pivot here before and I'll try, we could probably make this our, our last little discussion before we take off. Um, the, we hit $2.9 million, $2.9 million vaccinations on Saturday. Uh, it ramping up significantly, as I mentioned at the beginning of the, po uh, the podcast, my dad finally got his first dose of Pfizer. Um, thanks to the good people at uh, National Jewish. And it, it has been a uh, journey. And I think you can see people with uh, almost a light at the end of the tunnel feeling. People are itching to get back, uh, even though we can't. We obviously had Texas and, and Mississippi and Connecticut ease their mask mandates. Well, in fact, with Texas they and Alabama, not Alabama, and Mississippi, they repealed them completely. Um, how much? How how confident are you, as a person who has just been ob observing this from the outside, like me? How confident are you that we'll be able to get through this without certain states basically fucking it up for the rest of us? <laughs> well, for starters, Connecticut actually, I believe that they reopened business, but they re they maintained the mask mandate, gotcha. and gotcha. that's the way to do it. Um, 
is to for, because the the thing that you really you're doing that for is to protect the workers of these businesses, right. uh, not just from the coronavirus, but from the vitriol of the sort of polit politicization. Um, of masking. And so, I mean, Texas will be a fascinating tale. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of states where people are saying, hey, we're basically back to normal. Um, and it really does come down to like individually how comfortable you are engaging in those things. But I think that the, the vaccine rollout is going, you know, fairly well. And I think that it's going to be similar to like uh, last year when, you know, we couldn't find toilet paper for a month or something. And then all of a sudden everybody had the toilet paper and everything was okay again. Right. That's just how the vaccines are going to be. It's like everybody wants a vaccine. Everybody wants it really bad. Everybody wants it now. And in another six weeks, I think everyone that wants it will be able to just go get it, you know, at, at the grocery store or, you know, or at the drugstore. Um, and so that is going to be all that matters um, in the short term. And it's sort of like, you know, a, a Hail Mary that that's going to counteract what would happen with some of these states just deciding to say screw it to all the public health advisories over the past year. Um, because, you know, they've been flaunting them in a lot of ways as it is. This is just sort of a more formalization of that. And so um, I'm not pessimistic about an imminent um, sort of precipice of normalcy um, in spite of the Governor Abbott's of the world um, deciding that, you know, they have to make these declarative sort of policy statements right. at a time when it's not entirely helpful. You know, and they, the thing about it is like Dr. Fauci and epidemiologists and doctors and public health officials, I mean, they, their job is to be like as wildly restrictive as possible. I mean, according, if they, if they were running everything with no opposition, I mean, they would, we would just be completely shut down. No one would be leaving their houses, you know, and all of that for the past year, because that would that is the prescription for containing a pandemic. Right. But politicians interject some of the reality of that, which is that people aren't willing to just do that. That um, there is a, an economic cost, there's a personal cost to those things. And so walking that line then becomes the challenge. And um, I know here in our state, I think that they have been fairly effective in having those conversations, but they still run into situations like there's a county in Southern Colorado, Custer County. Custer County, yeah. That yeah. was like, we're not gonna do anything. We're not gonna adhere to any of the, the rules. And my first inclination was like, of course, these assholes, you know, don't know what's good for them. But then upon further review, like they don't have a single case in their county, you know? So you start to understand a guy who owns a diner or runs the grocery store or is a farmer down there, seeing their small town community ravished by the economic perils of this virus that isn't impacting them, you know, currently. So it create it requires more of a nuance. And, you know, we have been semi-successful in, um, in letting counties, you know, apply for variances and things like that. Um, and I think that's really what it takes. But as, in order for that kind of stuff to work, you have to have a functioning local government um, and state government. And as we know, there's a wide breadth of the competence of, uh, of who's running the states and, and what their motivations are for making decisions that are important for public health. Well, um, as someone who has been uh, probably extremely isolated since uh, March of last year. 2000. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, we, it is, I, I 
the, the, the vaccine can't, for me, can't get here soon enough. I will take the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, even though it's one shot people, people kind of that get focused on the efficacy and not understanding that it's basically, it, it's good at keeping you from getting really ill, which is the, what you want in any of these vaccines. And I will take it. Um, and uh, I think everyone we can see, and, and I don't know if you're like this and, I'll give you the last word as always. Um, I, 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 there's the light at the end of the tunnel. It's big, it's blaring, it's right in our faces. We have to shield our eyes because it's so bright. But our distance between here and there is, is still significant. Um, do you, you yourself feel this kind of like itchingness to, itch, to kind itchingness is not a word, this uh, uh, desire to, um, get there and and just have this like a little bit of frustration that we're not quite there yet oh absolutely i mean some of the this past couple of week or this last week where we've started to look back about how one year ago is when things kind of started to change and i've taken a moment and been like oh yeah i remember that day when they called off the basketball game in dallas i think it was like halftime mm -hmm. um they canceled spring training and they canceled the NCAA tournament, you know, all within like a 24 hour period or something. And I'm like, whoa, this is wild. Yeah. And I remember like it was spring break for school age kids. And, and it was like, oh, they're, they're going to extend spring break by a week. And you're like, whoa, that's crazy. That's never happened before. And I was just like, ah, it's going to be two, three weeks. We'll be back to normal. And so the fact that we've gone through an entire year um, has been definitely a time which has like provoked a reflection to that. And I mm -hmm. yearn. Morty, for the, just the, I, the idea that I can go into a bar amongst other humans and have a drink and look at a TV where there's a sports happening that is exuding an energy from a arena uh, because people are excited about it. Um, right. You know, uh, I I miss those things terribly. Um, going to a movie theater and seeing a movie amongst strangers and hearing them react to it, um, you know, and I want it so badly to, to be the new reality. And I think that it will be, I think that um, we're close to getting to a point and by close, I mean, within the next, you know, couple of months or, or into the early summer to where most things can mostly be back to normal. Right. There will be things that never go back to normal that we just decide like, you know what, it's better to do it this way anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the sort of notion that like, we don't have to fear each other as a weapon of a, of a disease that could kill us or that we could kill somebody else is going to be such a relief. And I have heard, you know, seen a lot of people in the economic sort of business analyst space that are talking about how, you know, this country is primed for like another roaring twenties um, as we emerge from this, where, you know, when, people have the opportunity to go out to concerts and sporting events. Again, they're going to do so like wholeheartedly. Um, I think as they start having kids back in school, it's going to be such a momentous and like celebratory type of uh, experience that it's really going to affect people emotionally in a positive way, um, which is a counteraction to the way that we've been dealing with the emotional um, you know, the personal emotional dealings with 
all that we've lost in this last year. And so I cannot wait. And I am also eager to take whatever vaccine um, is available to me when it is. And I tell everyone I know the same thing. And I think that it's a small thing that everyone can do to get us on this path. And it will be beautiful when we get there. Um, those of us that might have been inclined to stay in on a Friday night in normal times, uh, and it's going to take a while for us to elect to do that again after the, you know, the coast is clear. Absolutely. And uh, looking forward to the day very, very, very much so. And I would looking forward to the day where I can actually sit down with my my friend Pat here in the same room. That that would be (laughs) that is a good goal to have, I think. Um, Absolutely. So anyway, yeah, Pat, as always, gets the last word. Um, Thank you all for joining us in the latest CSG Politics. Uh, Pat and I will be back, uh, well, hopefully we won't put three weeks between ourselves and the next one. Uh, And uh, we'll be having to be talking to you about the news, uh, politics news of the week. So anyway, thank you all for joining us. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.